What's up, everybody? Welcome to a another episode of the live Q&A show with Dr. Rogers. Uh, we're going to let people uh, flow in here as we get as we get going. We got a bunch of great questions. Um, Dr. Rogers, how's it going? Great, Ben. How was your day? Uh, it has been amazing so far. It's extremely hot and humid outside. So, uh, luckily I was, I was inside most of the day. Uh, did you get a walk in? Yes. Uh, Ernie and I walked at lunch and had a great little, little walk. It was hot, but super hot, yeah. super, super mm-hmm. hot, uh, to everybody who is with us. Hello. Hello. Uh, thank you for hanging out. We're going to let people, um, get in here. Um, as you guys probably know, or hopefully you know, uh, this is our Q and A uh, segment of the week. Um, we answer your health and wellness questions. Uh, we take those questions throughout the week. You can email us with uh, any question you have uh, to info at performancemedicine.net. Uh, if you put Dr. Rogers' question or question for Dr. Rogers or live Q and A question, uh, we will get the team to um, comb through all those questions. Um, the other cool thing about this show is we take live questions. So we spend the first half of our, uh, of our show here on the questions brought in throughout the week, and then we take live questions for that second half. So go ahead and uh, put those in there if you have them. Uh, hello, mm-hmm. Catherine. I hope Colorado is amazing. Um, been out there one time and loved it. Um, thank you for being here. Uh, say hello, guys, if you're if you're with us. Um, we'll interact with everybody throughout the show. Dr. Rogers, you ready to roll? I'm ready. All right, here we go. First question is, how normal slash usual is it for PCPs to routinely run HbA1c tests? And a PCP, of course, means primary care physicians. What's your take on that? You know, run a hemoglobin A1c, which is a test for the average sugar levels in your bloodstream over a three month period. Yeah, it's very routine test. I mean, almost everybody runs a hemoglobin A1C, you know, certainly with diabetics, they need to check that. And it's a good screen for um, somebody pre-diabetic or overweight, um, just to kind of see what their average sugar is. Certainly for diabetics, um, you want to keep that number under seven, preferably six, and for non-diabetics, under 5.7 for sure. The lower, the better. Um, I saw two today that I checked to um, a husband and wife team, and both their A1Cs were 4.9, which is fantastic. You rarely see any in the fours, so they had very good control of sugar. A lot of times I'll check an insulin level, which will tell me even more about um, – person that might be pre-diabetic or uh, overweight yet insulin resistant. So a lot of times, you know, the function of insulin is to keep your blood sugars uh, normal. And sometimes if you eat too many carbs or you get overweight, your insulin level will keep going up to maintain your constant sugar level. So even though their sugar or A1C won't, won't change, your insulin level goes up. And that's a bad sign. That means you're insulin resistant. You're probably going to be a diabetic. So that's when you need to start thinking about way lowering your carbs or maybe get on medication like uh, metformin for it or even berberine. But, uh, yeah, it's a very common test. Well, that's I, wonder, useful. 
I want to ask a PCP question, and you know, because I've actually heard this uh, quite a bit just through our interactions online with people. Um, what would you advise people to do if they're having trouble getting their primary care physician to run a certain test on them? Uh, like, how can how can the patient uh, be a little more in control of that situation? Because I know a you know a lot of primary care physicians. Uh, won't run some of these tests. Have you have you heard any of that any feedback as well in, in inside of your practice? Sure. Yeah, he, I hear it all the time. With uh, you know, a lot of times patients uh, do research today. It's pretty available with uh, the internet and all. So yeah, a lot of times doctors get pretty obstinate. They won't run a test that you may suggest. Um, so in my opinion, find a new doctor, one that will listen to you. I mean, if it gets ridiculous, sometimes you have to say, hey, you don't really need that. But um, yeah. And plus, a lot of times when, you know, when I, here's the way I approach it. I, I, I like to listen to my patients. I'm working for the patient, with the patient. Um, so a lot of times, if they want something run that I absolutely don't think they need, it's a waste of their time, I'll, I'll tell them that, um, you know, I'll be glad to run it. You know, again, I don't think your insurance is going to pay for this. It's a very expensive test, but if you, I think it's a 99% chance it's going to be normal, but if it'll make you feel better, rest easier at night, let's run it, but you're going to end up paying for it. Most of the time, man, we don't need that test. <laughs> so just be nice to people and talk to them and reason with them and, uh, you know, learn from each other. So. I like that. All right, let's go to question number two here. Uh, and another another question where I could uh, fumble on my words here. Uh, how do you differentiate bet- uh, between obesity, lymph- lymphedema, and lipedema? Um, I, I hope I pronounced that uh, to the person who, who asked that question. I, I hope I did that question justice. Yeah, I think you pronounced them all right. Of course, obesity is just... You know, you, you're, it's a lot of different de- definitions of obesity. Some people think it's your BMI, which is just your weight for your height, which is a very poor way to measure um, fat. The best way to des- describe obesity is to, to measure your belly, you know, right around your, your belly button. And, you know, usually if it's over 34 uh, for a man, you're obese. If it's over 30. Two for a woman, certainly you're obese. Uh, so I look at belly fat in terms of obesity. I mean, people, the weight doesn't mean a lot uh, if you have a lot of muscle. Um, so I don't like the BMI for measurement. I like that waist to hip ratio measurement um, a lot. You know, on a man, it should be one to one. Your waist should be the same width as your hips. In a woman, it should be 0.8. Your waist should be smaller than your hips. Um, So obesity to me is defined as what's happening with your gut. You know, Um, lymphedema is totally different. Um, Lymphedema is where you you have blockage in in your your lymph vessels. You know, you, you have another system of circulation besides blood circulation and that's lymph circulation it's a fluid that it's kind of like it's the body's sewage system it carries off waste 
Um, you know, everybody knows what their lymph nodes are. There's a little notch you can get under your arm in your growing area. And they actually, there are many places, neck, um, mostly you get sick and they swell because they fight off toxins and bacteria and viruses. And um, lymphedema is a, can be a chronic condition where um, it just won't drain right. And the most classic example is somebody that's had uh, cancer and they've cut out a lot of your lymph nodes like breast cancer and your that on the side your arm will swell from uh, lymph fluid that doesn't have anywhere to go. Um, so it gets backed up and it can be a pretty horrible situation. It can happen on your lower extremities as well. Um, I've seen that happen with uh, cancers, um, you know, pelvic type cancers. Um, a lot of times we don't know what may be blocking it. Uh, sometimes, you know, your, your lymph fluid is very closely tied into your immune system too. And um, that's, that's what these lymph nodes are for, to kind of fight the bacteria and the toxins. And, and uh, they'll swell because there's a fight going on there. Um, if you dig deep enough, you can always feel them. But when they get tender and large, that means you've got some type of infection going on. Now, some people that have chronic lymphedema from some kind of injury uh, to that circulation system. As a matter of fact, your lymph circulation is a lot, you have a lot more fluid in your lymph uh, circulation than you do blood, believe it or not. Um, and if you, if you saw it, which you can, if you cut into it, it's more of a yellowish fluid. It looks kind of gross. It's not blood. Um, so... That's kind of a short explanation of lymphedema. It gets pretty complex, but certainly things you can do. Rebounding, um, right? Rebounding. That's a great point. Yeah, I got a rebounder, and it, it just helps stimulate lymphatic flow. And, so, uh, so when, when you stimulate <laughs> when you stimulate lymphatic flow, that means it doesn't knot up. Is that the purpose of it? Right, and so it doesn't swell up. A lot of times with, with lymphedema, you can push into it. It looks like you're pushing into the Pil Pillsbury Doughboy. So can venous insufficiency with bad circulation of your blood, but mm -hmm. um, it just appears a little different. Usually it's, it's more one-sided, you know, because of injury. Sometimes it can be bilateral, but so rebounding will help. Certainly eating an autoimmune good uh, diet will help it. Um, some herbs can help it. I think apple cider vinegar is pretty good for that. Echinacea is a good one for that. Um, you know, certainly eating clean and drinking a lot of water and moving, you know, your muscles will stimulate the flow of your lymphatic fluid. You don't have like a heart muscle pumping it out. Um, and it certainly can get clogged. Another way is dry brushing. Um, my favorite way is uh, through massage therapy. Mm -hmm. You know, there's specialists that, that uh, have these techniques with um, um, special ways to massage the uh the limbs especially to get to kind of flush that lymphatic fluid down and it exits through your usually your superior vena cava or inferior vena cava and sometimes out of the lower legs too elevation helps sometimes um, bandaging compression bandaging that. now there you can also have similar looking swelling on your lower legs from poor circulate poor venous return um and that's different from lymphedema. It's two different types of circulation. 
that they can look kind of similarly on your lower legs. Typically, you have poor venous circulation when you've been on your feet all day and your legs are swollen. You can also punch into them and they get better in the morning because you've had them elevated all night. Um, you can wear compression stockings for this, elevate your legs and look into your um, your venous circulation through uh, ultrasound. You have one-way valves that get leaky that uh, prevent backflow because there's no pump pumping the blood back from your toes to your heart. So you have these one-way valves that shut when the blood's pumped up through your calf muscles. A lot of times these things get leaky and by gravity, the, the, uh, the blood goes down um, in your feet and that can be a chronic condition too. Certainly for either condition, lose weight. Obesity really contributes to lymphedema and venous insufficiency. Now, the other one you mentioned, lipedema, is something entirely different. That's not as common. That's a condition where uh, you have excess fat on the arms or legs, and it's, it's kind of um, just excess fat for no other reason. You could be lean and have these big knots on your arms, unlike lipomas, which are just like fatty tumors. These are more diffuse. And they use on the backs of arms or on, on the legs or even the thighs. It's kind of unusual. It looks looks really weird on a regular sized person. They've got these fatty areas. Certainly you could do liposuction. Um, I'm anxious to see how you know our evolve machine works uh, our radio frequency fat dissolver works for that too. I look forward to doing that. It's been very effective for removing uh unwanted fat from areas from people that just can't rid of, get rid of their love handles or their back fat um, or some of these other areas that um, thigh, inner thighs, etc. But lipedema is an unusual condition. Nobody really knows. It may be genetic. Some of it may be circulation caused, but a lot of people not sure exactly. But great question. That's great a tough question. one. Super. Tough one. I hope I answered some of that, but Super. Get a good massage therapist. That'll help any of this stuff. There you go. There you go. Well, uh, well, guys, I'm going to remind everybody who's here, uh, we are going to be taking live questions in just a couple minutes. So uh, if you have a question for Dr. Rogers, go ahead and put in the comments. Uh, Robin, I see you. What's going on? Barbara, thanks for being here. Morgan, what's up, man? Lauren, what's up? Thank you uh, for hanging out. Linda, Linda, how you doing? Um, all right, so we're going to get down to this next one here real quick. Um, what's the best multivitamin to take for a 65 year old male with diabetes and heart disease? Well, I like the life extension two a day. That seems to have about 10 times more vitamins in it than a, a Centrum. Um, certainly take it with meals because it's potent. It'll cause nausea if you don't take it with a meal. And it has all the, the trace minerals, B complex, all the stuff that you you don't get through single vitamins. So I think everybody needs a good multi, but you know, you're 65 and you have diabetes and heart disease, something certainly with alpha lipoic acid, maybe some chromium, um, CoQ10, you know, usually you have to, you need to take more CoQ10. So I like to take a separate one for that. Um, omega threes, usually you have to take that separately. That's not going to be in a multi. Uh, so take a good two a day and take extra CoQ10, take an omega uh, or two or three and check your 
check your Cleveland heart panel to see what kind of values you do have in, in these vitamins. Very important. Um, but uh, great question. Again, your diet's more important than your multivitamin, but certainly you need a multivitamin too to have all the trace minerals and things that you may be missing from your diet. So good question. All right. Another couple more vitamin questions, actually. Uh, Dr. Rogers, I saw your vitamin list. Uh, do you ever cycle off of your vitamins? I've actually heard um, quite a few people talk about um, cycling off of vitamins. What's your thoughts on that? I do. Yeah. You know, once a week, I don't take any just to give it a break. Just one day a week. I take a lot of vitamins. If you've seen my list, I take a lot of vitamins. And uh, because they're available to me, I research them and, you know, I'm trying to keep everything aging well. And so, yeah, it's a good, it's a good idea to, to occasionally take a break from them. So, um, I'll just take one day a week off from my vitamins. Otherwise, especially during this COVID and all, you don't want to take too much of a break from your CD and zinc for sure. Um, because COVID's still around the last patient I saw today or telemedicine was a new COVID patient. So it's still out there. Um, I, I think we're on the decline, but um, certainly take your vitamins, keep your own immune system healthy. You know, you don't have to worry as much about uh, fighting off these viruses and toxins and things. So That's great a, question. It is a great question. We've got the last one here. And guys, if you're, if you're with us, got a question, <clears throat> go ahead and put that in the comments. We'll get to that here in just a second. Uh, last question here is, um, 71 year old male who has been very lucky health wise. I take a thousand milligrams of C daily. And I believe in the, uh, email, it was crystal vitamin C daily and have for decades. I read that you take 2000 milligrams daily. Um, doesn't most of mine and yours end up in urine? Uh, part of me thinks that that's because of the, of y'all's ages being similar. Um, what's your, what's your thoughts on that? Well, any vitamin like that can end up in the urine, but yeah, certainly uh, a lot of it does end up in the urine. You know, when you take an oral vitamin C, about 20% of it gets into the uh, cell. And certainly that's why you need to take a lot of it. So that's why, especially during COVID, I opened mine to 2000 instead of a thousand. Um, but I'll tell you, people that take vitamin C, I used to think they were nuts because I, I told them they'd pee it out too, but I, I was, think I was wrong about that because you do absorb some of it. It certainly seems to help, you know, prevent viruses and colds. I mean, knock on wood, I can't remember the last time I had anything like that. Um, I'm sure it's because of uh, one thing's vitamin C. I mean, that's, that's great for... Um, fighting off viruses for sure. Um, so, and there's different forms of C. I think, you know, a lot of it's uh, ascorbic acid, you know, which can be acidic. If you take, if it hurts your stomach, then take a different form of it, like sodium ascorbate, or probably the best absorbed oral form of it is ester C. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so if it bothers your stomach, change your form of it. You know, we do a lot of IV vitamin C in here. And one thing about IV vitamin C, 100% of it gets into the cells. I mean, getting a vitamin C intravenous uh, load is just a phenomenal thing. Um, it really helps a lot of conditions. You know, we can't 
claim it cures cancer, but it's it's a good uh, supplementary treatment for cancer. Certainly, uh, we give a lot of IV vitamin C, even sometimes up to a hundred thousand milligrams of it. Think about how much that is. We're a hundred percent of it's getting in. That's going hundred percent in. You take one or two grams, twenty percent of it gets in. That's hardly nothing, but it seems to help. But if you have something serious and you get an IV vitamin C, it's just a really potent brew. I'll tell you that much. And it's, uh, you know, we work your doses up slowly and for different reasons, you know, um, it seems to help a lot of people with, uh, chronic illnesses and, and all, but certainly the IV vitamin C is a really potent thing and really it's a great antioxidant, but, uh, so I hope that helps you. I do believe in vitamin C. Linus Pauling was not a nut. He was a Nobel prize winner, but, um, yeah. certainly believer in vitamin C. And I'll, I'll add to that. We had a, um, on this week on, um, outside the box, uh, we, we interviewed Dan Bolton, uh, who's a PhD, uh, chemist at Eastman in Kingsport, um, a cancer survivor. And he goes into detail about high dose vitamin C and some other alternative, uh, cancer treatments is a, it's really an amazing story. So, uh, if, if you guys have not watched it, uh, just went up this morning actually on YouTube, head on over to YouTube when we're done with this. Uh, it's a really cool story. Really cool story. Talks about story. Uh, phenomenal high dose C, which is, which is amazing. It uh, works. It, it really does. It really does. And, and the, the absorption rates are, are really important. You know, the fact that you said 20% of the, of the vitamin gets to the cell is unbelievable. You know, whereas, you know, when you get it through an IV a hundred percent, uh, still, you know, still take your vitamins, of course. Um, yeah. And vitamin C has been proven to reverse sepsis bacteremia. You know, it's in the protocols of a lot of the hospitals now. And, uh, certainly if you get got a bad case of COVID, you want to beg them for an IV vitamin C, uh, treatment, several of them. But, uh, so vitamin C is, great thing yep yep uh guys thank you for that and we're going to go to the the live portion uh so so get in the comments um talk to us here we're going to interact here for the next uh next couple of minutes here going to go for around 30 today um i'll go ahead and, and answer this one because i i know um so Catherine's asking about the the youtube and vitamin c uh his name is dan bolton um, and, and that is on, uh, performance medicine's YouTube channel. It's a, um, it's a, you know, gosh, an hour long interview about, uh, about his cancer story. Uh, it's really amazing. Uh, if you go to our channel, uh, you can find that there's a bunch of also, uh, links in the show notes that, that goes into detail more about vitamin C and, and, and cancer, although we can't, uh, claim that it, uh, cures cancer or anything, but a really interesting story. Um, okay. So let's go to Barbara here. Um, Barbara asks, why did the injection of vitamin C cause my blood pressure to go up? And I'm assuming, would that be, uh, an IVC, uh, Barbara? Uh, I bet that's what she's talking about. I'm guessing that's a, a, a high, maybe a high dose or a Myers. Yeah, sometimes when you infuse, of course, you have to infuse fluid with those vitamins. So you're expanding your volume. So it wouldn't be unusual for it to go up a little bit, but it made you uncomfortable. That's something we do when we're doing those uh, high dose vitamin C um, 
infusions, we monitor the blood pressure and uh, all your vials while you're doing it. Um, so it could have possibly caused it. I mean, just getting an IV could cause your blood pressure to go up because you get nervous maybe. You know, it's, it's an IV, but uh, it's certainly not going to do any harm with your blood pressure. Um, but um, if you got too much vitamin C, you could have diarrhea. Uh, and, and don't they I've uh, seen that one time maybe maybe one time in a and we, cancer patient we do t- check a, a g6pd level uh for the for the high dose vitamin c myers is still i think has 20,000 uh 20,000 milligrams of c versus say like no a, myers has about nine nine about nine milligrams so you yeah. don't need to to check the, the nine, g6pd nine thousand not it has a nine thousand yeah but uh uh but no, not for that. But for high dose, you need a G6PD to check for a weird genetic trait that wouldn't tolerate that. But um, yeah, uh, so hopefully your blood pressure came down, you know. But uh, yeah, I would imagine um, that part of that had to do with uh, actually getting the the IV. I, I've uh, funny enough, I I don't really like going to the dentist and they, they check my, my blood pressure before cleaning. And, uh, I think I called you like right afterwards because my, my blood pressure was through the roof and <laughs> you're nervous. And I, 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 I was thinking the same thing Barbara was thinking, um, you know, like, man, uh, but anyways, uh, so it's looking like there's no more questions here. Motaz, I, got a couple. I, I guess I got a couple here. Motaz, thanks for being um, here, man. Uh, always, you're the man. Always, I do have a couple. I do have a couple here written questions that just came into me. Okay. Um, should a PCP be performing a testicular exam annually? Um, yes. I mean, you know, along with um, if you're over forty, you should be getting a prostate exam as well. You just check them together. Uh, so yeah, especially on younger guys, you want to check. You know that. Um, 18 to 30 age group when testicular cancer is a lot more common rarely see it in an older guy but yeah that's part of the exam and check for hernia as well so yearly and uh you ask for it if he doesn't check it yeah you know you need to communicate and make sure they check it i mean that's part of the exam is to check that and so it's a head-to-toe exam your annual that needs to be looked at certainly if anyone has any questions about how to interact with a you know a primary care physician, you know things to ask. This is a great place to do it. Um, you know, I, I you you know, Dr. Rogers and I have, have talked quite a bit about you know how to interact with the the current healthcare system, uh, what tests you need run, um, how to you know, for example, you talk a lot about going in with one problem, one to two tops, solving those and, uh, super helpful stuff. So if anybody needs help with that, uh, you can put that in the comments at some point. We'll, we'll get to that. We'll probably do a a show dedicated to that. But, uh, but man, guys, this has been, this is always so much fun. It's one of the, the, the highlights of the week for me. Uh, I get to, to talk to Dr. Rogers, who many of you know, is also my dad. So we get to we get to we get to hang out a little bit and and interact with everybody, um, guys. We we really appreciate the questions, Catherine. Thank you for the question, Barbara. Thank you for the question, uh, everyone else. Thank you for being here. It means a whole lot to us. Um, and we're we're we've been talking a lot about diabetes today. We do have a, a diabetes dedicated Q and A show. 
Um, we are um, really kind of diving into that community um, because it's a, a passion of ours. It's, you know, it's one of the reasons that I know, you know, Dr. Rogers started performance medicine was, uh, was when, you know, both my brother and sister were diagnosed with type 1. Uh, this show is for type 1 diabetes and type 2 diabetes, where uh, Andy Rogers uh, answers questions specific to diabetes. And we got already got a, quite a few for this week's show. We're working on the time. It's either going to be tomorrow night or Thursday night. Uh, we're we're kind of working out uh, how we're going to do that um, on a consistent basis. But that will be weekly. Um, this show, of course, is every Tuesday night around uh around 5 45 um uh, and yes I, i'll go ahead and answer this for for linda yes we're, we're, we'll make that happen i know i i know a, i know a person um i know someone who can help you with that um <laughs> deb thank you for being here uh always appreciate nice always appreciate it. you seeing uh hanging out dr rogers thank you and we are going to sign off. Until next time, guys, we will be back. Um, check me and Andy out here in the next day or so. You'll see an announcement for that. And uh, Dr. Raj and I will be back next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, man. Bye. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode of the podcast. Uh, please share the podcast with your friends. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please subscribe. Uh, we will see you guys next time.